I'm wondering this morning if you've ever struggled with being good or being good enough. Ever, you ever wrestle with that, whether it's in um, looking for a job, maybe when, when you were uh, applying for some place to work and you wondered if you were good enough for the position that you wanted, or maybe when you were in school and you, you wanted to be on the team, uh, whatever team you were most excited about, whatever sport that was, you wondered if you were good enough for that when you're making friends at school or the workplace or you come into a a new community of people maybe and you wonder if I'm good enough for people. We're going to look at uh, that whole concept of being good and what that means and uh, can you you ever be good enough, really? We're going to do that this morning as we look at um, a few verses from Mark 10. We'll be looking at verses uh, 17 through 22. We read these words there. As he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. May God give us wisdom as we consider these words this morning. Uh, We're going to look at... uh, what Jesus is talking about here, we're going to move through three different areas there. Uh, we're going to look at trying to define what's good. Uh, we're going to see what standards are set for, for good and then um, where, where this man and where we might be missing the mark. So we're going to look at uh, defining the good here. Uh, what makes something or someone good? Uh, when when my when my eggs cook up just right in the morning and that over easy is perfect with no jiggly white but the yolk is just as uh, runny as can be that's a good egg in my opinion now I know Dale would disagree I know Dale he would like to beat that thing to death again until it doesn't look like an egg anymore but that's that's Dale's idea of a good egg right. So what, what makes something good or someone good? Uh, are you good because, because you're here this morning? Did you do a good thing because you came to church on Sunday morning? Was that a good thing? Is, is that how you would characterize somebody as being good? Is it what they did uh, in this past week? Is it what they do for a living? 
maybe it's their personality. You know, they're a warm and inviting personality. The, the harsh personality, those aren't good people, are they? Uh, we, we set these definitions around what good is based on uh, maybe the way we think about things. Um, there's a good vacation. Because uh, you can go on vacation, you can go on a cruise, and, and the, the sanitary system in the ship stops working, and, and everybody's getting sick, and what was supposed to be a good vacation, going on a cruise, turns out to be not a good one at all. Uh, you can have um, a good friend. A good friend is there with you uh, through thick and thin through the trials of life and uh, those times where uh, things are going well. You can have a, a good job. Is that one that you get out early or one that makes you a lot of money? Or We have all these ideas about what good is, but we seem to maybe differ in our opinions about what makes them good. And uh, what makes, again, that that person, an overall good person. So we have this story here where uh, a man comes to Jesus and uh, we just, uh, it says here, uh, a man ran up. The, the heading in my Bible, maybe in yours too, uh, the rich young man, if you would look at uh, Luke's account of this same story, uh, Luke indicates that he's a, a ruler, uh, probably a ruler in the synagogue. He's He's a prominent person. So here's this man. He, he runs up to Jesus and he says, Good teacher. And this man has some sort of idea himself about what good is. Uh, he, he recognizes something about Jesus. There's really no indication of his interaction with him before, but certainly as Jesus' ministry is growing, um, more and more people are hearing about him, encountering him, maybe watching from a distance. But he recognizes something about Jesus that he calls him good. Now, maybe for you and I, that's, uh, that's okay. Maybe we've done that in different cultures in times of the past too. A uh, good sir, um, we, would, we would address somebody. Uh, but... But this man is calling Jesus good. And for somebody that could very likely be a, a ruler of the synagogue, calling somebody good had a special significance. The rabbis of Jesus' day would never use the word good except for God alone. Maybe in other rare instances, but that word that's being used here for good was reserved only in that place. So for this man to run up and, and call Jesus good teacher, he's saying something by it. Maybe he's just flattering him. Uh, we don't really see yet inside this man's heart and we can't make that judgment as to where his mind is, but, but knowing the culture and maybe getting a better understanding from, from Luke's description of him, he would have some sort of understanding of that word good. Again, is he flattering Jesus? He, he, he comes and he, he, he kneels down before him. He, he humbles himself before him. So there's something about what he thinks about Jesus that in some ways he is good. Now, if he is a ruler or a, a, a rabbi, possibly somebody in the synagogue there, 
he may even consider himself an equal to Jesus. And yet he, he calls him good. Jesus, as he often does though, um, as the man asks his question, Jesus uh, responds, and, and you and I, I don't, I don't always like it either. I don't know how, how I would have done in Jesus' presence. But he answers the question with a question. And so now it's kind of put back in the man's lap. Why do you call me good? The, the man's asking a question about how do, you, how do you obtain eternal life, but he addresses Jesus as good, and Jesus' response to the man is not the answer to his question. He puts the question back to maybe see what his definition of good is. Why do you call me good? No one's good except for God. This is, I think, for us, uh, meant to create a little tension in the story. No one is good except God. And the man just called Jesus good. Now maybe Jesus would stand there and wait. See if he picks up on that. Like when the Pharisee says, who can forgive sins but God alone? As Jesus just forgave this man his sins, the paralytic. And wondering, will they make that connection? Would, would the Pharisee see that if you can forgive sins, he must be God? And this man now, when he, when he recognizes something about Jesus and he says, good teacher, and Jesus says, no one's, God, no one's good except for God, would he make that connection? And I think Jesus is uh, opening the door for some of that conversation there. He's, he's exposing the, the heart of the man and his understanding of where he's at in his uh, walk in life. As somebody that has some significance in the community, Jesus wants to see if he can understand from him, from his own words, who he is. Jesus kind of draws him into this conversation about defining good. And again, uh, no one is good but God alone, Jesus said. So actually, Jesus has set the standard. The, the Scripture itself sets the standard for what is good and who is good. And so there you have Jesus who's going to give him a little bit of the, the answer to the question, but when Jesus said, no one's good but God alone, he has, he has set that standard. There's only one good, and no one's like him. In Jesus' response to this man, he, he starts to engage in that conversation with him um, about the man's desire to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, well, you, you know the commandments, right? So Jesus makes reference to the Ten Commandments. When Jesus... Uh, begins to draw him in and, and try to give some sort of an answer to the man, he points him back to the Ten Commandments. You know what the, the commandments say. So this is the interesting part. Would you be then taking what Jesus said, if, if you want to inherit eternal life, keep the commandments? Did Jesus just point to the Ten Commandments 
as the, the rule for eternal life? That's the question that you and I would have to wrestle with in this. Because Jesus' answer to the man is, uh, if, if, if he's asking about eternal life, look at the commands. So set that on the shelf here for a minute. That's where Jesus starts. The interesting thing with that is the commands that Jesus references. Now we know, we, we hear those things and we know he's referring to the Ten Commandments, but, but when you hear the list that Jesus produces, um, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. There's that one in there, do not defraud. It's not in the Ten Commandments. Uh, but we've already seen that Jesus is the one who has mastery over the Word. He is the living Word, and it's up to Him to define what some of those things mean. And He is very likely pointing towards uh, do not covet. And maybe the, the do not defraud is that sense where uh, don't covet money so much that you would cheat your neighbor or your coworker, your brother or sister or whatever. But Jesus lists what we know to be the second tablet of the law, the, the second half the, of, the, of the commandments there. Are the other ones not important? All of these questions should be rolling around in our minds as Jesus is talking to this young man who's wanting to know about eternal life and Jesus points him to the second half of the law, of those Ten Commandments. I think he's challenging the man, again, on who sets the standards. Because the man's, the man's answer to that is that he's done all of that. But, but God's standard is always set to perfection. We've, we've heard that before. Uh, God, God always puts the standard at the very top. It's never lowered. God's standard for his people has always been perfect obedience. And yet, no one has been able to do that. No one has been able to keep God's law perfectly. Scripture reminds us that we have all sinned, we have all fallen short. There is not one good except where Jesus says it's God alone. The standard has been set and yet, when Jesus is referencing here what this man needs to do, he seems to have forgotten the first half of the commands when he's speaking to this man. And I think that maybe the man is very happy that Jesus said that. Because if, if those are the only ones that have to take place. If those are the ones that I need to keep, I think the man's on the right track, right? He's, he says, I've, I've been doing all of that since I was a boy. So far, the man thinks he's meeting the standard for what Jesus is saying, what he needs to do to inherit eternal life, which I think is interesting. Um, I hear those words. I uh, what do you have to do 
to inherit. How do you... If you inherit something, it's just given to you, right? I mean, if you're, if I'm Larry's son, and 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 not that you're that much older than me, Larry, but uh, when when Larry's time on earth is done, I inherit all of that belongs to Larry because I belong to him, and it wasn't anything I did. Right? So the man says, "What do I need to do to inherit?" And so Jesus, in this dialogue gives him the second half of the commandments, and he says, well, that's, that's wonderful. I've, I've been doing all of that since I was a boy. And yet, um, if this is the man's standard, and he agrees to that, he's still missing the mark. What Jesus points out here is that what he's done isn't good enough yet. You still lack one thing. So this ought to make us perk up too, right? This is the one thing. If you've done all of that, there's just one more thing to do. Take all of your possessions, sell them, and give them to the poor. Would that be the standard then for everybody? Because people have gone down that road too and said, Jesus said, sell all you have, this man has been obedient in, in what the Ten Commandments say as Jesus has listed them, but he says you still need one more thing. Sell everything and give it to the poor. And there have been those that would say that that's the, that's the standard for all of us. That to have things is wrong. This man kept the commandments, but... He had so much, it, it, it was just bad. Having things is wrong. So sell it and give it to the poor. But that can't be the standard for all people because then what Jesus is saying, if possessions make you bad and you're not good enough because of that, sell and give it to the poor, didn't you just make all the poor people bad people then? Because now they have your possessions. Well, that can't be it either then. It isn't a universal rule that we all have to sell everything that we have and give it away. Jesus is still probing the heart of the man here. If he's trying to expose this man and his condition, what exactly did he reveal? What Jesus hasn't mentioned, but... I think what Jesus is getting at here is that inasmuch as you've kept the, the second half of the law, that's how you deal with people. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. All of these things have to do with our relationship with one another. And the Pharisees were also brought under scrutiny by Jesus when, when he took them to task on what they thought they were doing. They've never murdered anybody, but they hate people. They've never committed adultery, but they've lusted after somebody. And Jesus gets at the heart of the people, and he says, You've, you may have kept all those things, but you still need to shift your trust. What, what the man has missed the mark at is the first part of the Ten Commandments. No other gods... No idols to bow down to. Do not take 
the God's name in vain and remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. There's no evidence in this man's life that he does those things. Any one of them. His, his God in his life is his money. The idol that he has that he worships is his, his possessions and we see that at the end he's, he's overwhelmed with sorrow because his idol is his money, his idol, his God. And as someone that is likely a ruler in the synagogue there, he's taking God's name in vain. Going back to what we said at the beginning, what we talk about at the end when we receive God's blessing and he puts his name on his people. If you have his name and you live as though you don't have it, you take his name in vain. Like a woman who takes her husband's name but then brings shame to the name. She takes his name in vain. And so this man also struggling with that. If you are a uh, one who professes knowledge of an association with God, then you would live like that. Otherwise, his name has no significance for you. And remember the Sabbath day. Now, there's nothing about what was said here as far as if this man is a regular attender. If he's a ruler in the synagogue, you would naturally expect so. But there's nothing about what he does to keep the Sabbath day. But he isn't. That whole idea of Sabbath rest came as the Israelites were, were coming out of uh, Egypt and being set free from bondage and slavery and trusting in the provisions of God and he said on the Sabbath day, do not work, don't do anything. I will take care of you. I'll make sure that you have enough from the day before to get you through to the Sabbath, through the Sabbath. Trusting in God's provisions. That whole idea of Sabbath rest uh, tied very deeply with being set free from that which binds us. That Sabbath rest that still remains for God's people because we're still plagued by uh, the sins that hold us bondage. We've been, we've been covered by the blood of the Lamb and yet they linger on in us. And so that rest still remains for us. And so this man is missing uh, that relational aspect of life with God. He's, he's figured out how to live with other people. But he has forgotten that the Ten Commandments are this, this covenant bond between God and His people. You could almost read it like a, a marriage covenant. No other gods before me. Don't worship anybody else. Don't covet anybody else. Don't, all of these things have uh, an aspect of a, a marriage relationship. And that's what the, the relationship between God and His people is. It's, a, it's an intimate relationship. It's brought out again in the New Testament when when Paul talks about the, the relationship between husbands and wives, and he says, this is a great mystery, but I'm, I'm referring to Christ and the church. This, this intimate relationship that God has always had with His people. And the man has seemed to have missed that relationship aspect, covenant relationship with God. 
I've gone through the list of do's and don'ts, but he's missing out on that covenant relationship. He didn't really ever directly answer the man. But Jesus has that wonderful way of still bringing you and I and this man to a place of understanding where our values are, where our priorities are, where our trust is, in the way he probes our hearts and minds. One thing that he was lacking. It's what, it's what Jesus had said last time when he gave the example of the children as entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And you cannot, not any way, get in unless you do it like a child. Do you remember what those words were that characterized the child? What, what do you need that's childlike to get into the kingdom? Trust, dependence, and obedience. It's what this man is still missing. He's teetering on the, the, the obedience part, but his trust and dependence is still someplace else. And you begin to see where Jesus is exposing this man's faith. But did you notice? Did you notice Jesus' heart towards the man? When, when some of the Pharisees come to Jesus, he rebukes them. He's angry with them. When his disciples were, were rebuking people that were bringing the children, Jesus was indignant with them. But did you see the posture Jesus has towards this man? This man who ran up to Jesus and humbled himself before him and wants to know the answer to having eternal life. Do you notice how Jesus addressed him? He looked at him, it says. He looked at him and loved him. Jesus has great love for this man and his desire is that the man will understand what Jesus is saying and recognize that the, the only one that's good stands before him. And the relationship that he's been missing out on is right there, ready to be engaged with. He loved him and said, get rid of all of that stuff and come and follow me. And then you'll have treasure. But the man we know goes away full of sorrow because he thought he had great possessions. And yet he had nothing yet. There was still nothing of significance that this man had that would do him any good. All of his money, all of his wealth would one day perish. And Jesus stands before him and loves him and wants to Invite him into the relationship that's missing from his life. And the man went away sad. I think at that time, Jesus was too. Jesus doesn't want anybody to be lost. 
His compassion is for, for all people. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Jesus stands before the man and he says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. And he loved him. And I'm confident Jesus was sad that the man didn't see the one thing he lacked yet that was standing right in front of him. Like the disciples who said, we don't have any bread with us. And their provisions were there in the boat. We often miss what's right in front of us because we have our own definition of of what's good, what's acceptable, what's needed. And Jesus wants to make that plain to us. And so when we go out and live our lives, as we give testimony to the goodness of God in our lives and what He's done for us, we can profess the, the hope that we have in the one good God. Everything else would fail us. Everything else will fail the world around us, and it does. What, what message are you preaching? Going back to that verse from earlier. What are you preaching? The words you use. Do you, do you use words with people that draw them into a lifelong relationship with the one true good God? And when you live your lives and you, you show what's significant and important to you, would, would people look at you and be drawn into that, that covenant relationship that, that we have? Would that be a winsome conversation, something that you're doing for them or with them? Would that be something that would draw them into what you have and cause them to want it as well? Do you and I, like Jesus, love the people that stand before us at times and still don't recognize what they could have even though they think they have it all? We're so good at defining our own uh, lives and our own our own good, and we're, we're certainly really good at defining what would make us good for the next life. In that same way that this man thinks he has it all figured out, I do good and I, I, I don't do bad against people, is still missing the mark. And so for us, uh, to live our lives in such a way that what we say and what we do would draw people into what they're missing as well. The, the one thing that's still missing from their lives, and it isn't selling what they have, it's that one relationship that's being offered to them. That's the way we ought to live our lives so that people are drawn into that. And that nobody walks away without having heard. Jesus sets the example for us again and how to love people. Jesus and His Father are the only thing good and it is our privilege and our task to draw people to that. It's our challenge again today to to be winsome in the way we speak and the way we live our lives that we might also draw people in. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have, uh, many of us, struggled with being good enough.
And maybe too many of us at times have, have felt like we are. Maybe we struggle with having set our own standard for being good. And we have defined what it would take to be acceptable in your eyes by the things that we define as good. And yet, uh, this message again reminds us that there's only one good standard and it's the one true God. And so, Father, forgive us where, where we have even lowered your standards for our own lives when we count ourselves as somehow worthy of receiving eternal life. We talk about people in ways that when their lives are ended early, we say, Father, they were such good people. As if our goodness could do anything to affect our eternal existence. So, Father, help us and remind us and knit back into our hearts and minds this morning through this message that our goodness comes through that relationship to the one true good God. And may your name be the one that's lifted up in what we speak, in the way we do things, in the way we interact with one another. And may we never lower that bar. The bar is set for all of us. You didn't lower it for us. Let us not lower it for anybody else. But draw them into a true gospel relationship with our living Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.